Today on Wine Access Unfiltered. On Cheers, you'll notice there is a disclaimer at the top of every episode that said Cheers was filmed before a live studio audience is because the laughter that we used on Cheers was real. Mm. We had 250 people in a bleacher with microphones over their heads. Mm -hmm. But, But some of those laugh tracks, a lot of those were recorded in the 50s. Not only is it intrusive and annoying, but a lot of those people who are laughing are dead. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I'm never going to listen to a laugh track again the same way. Vanessa, you and I are TV. Maybe junkie isn't the right word for you. It's definitely the right word for me. I don't want to assume. I know you love TV, though, and I know we've talked about it a lot. I love really great TV. Yeah, okay, that's fair. That's fair. I, I don't ever just, like, put it on for company. You know, I, like, make a date to watch something, yeah. uh, you know, that I'm really excited about. But, yes, and I'm very excited about TV. Yeah, we've got Ken Levine. So speaking of great TV, I mean, Ken has – you look at his IMDb page and it's just the who's who list of the greatest network TV shows that have ever been written. Um, Let's read them off because there's a few. MASH, Cheers, Frasier, The Simpsons, Wings, Everybody Loves Raymond, and Dharma and Greg. If you had just stopped at MASH, I would have been impressed. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about that before we left. I was like, even if he just did one of these things, you'd be like, yeah, come on the show. We'd love to have you. Um, yeah, I mean, he he's written for just some truly, truly amazing shows. Uh, had a 30-year had a career in which he won Emmys. And then he was like, you know what? I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to keep going. And then he continued to do the announcing for the Baltimore Orioles, the Seattle Mariners, San Diego Padres. He hosted Dodger Talk and continues today, if you can believe it, has his own podcast, has a blog that was rated one of the best 25 blogs by Time Magazine. I mean, literally, I don't think there's anything besides maybe actually playing baseball, although I guess we'll find out if he actually can, uh, that this guy can't do. I, uh, I'm i going into this already feeling like an underachiever. I know, which is crazy given all of your numerous accolades, master of wine, master of everything. Well, right back at you, but I'm, I am I'm excited. I'm excited about the <laughs> wine today too. Yeah, I am too. And I, I had a really fun conversation with Laura who hopped off and she's like, I don't even know where to start, which we say a lot, but she was like, no, seriously, this guy has done so much stuff and he's got a fairly a, a fairly California focused palette in that he he likes fruit driven wines. He mentioned Ben and Jerry's as something that he sort of looks to <laughs> as as inspiration for both wine and flavors in ice cream. So we went we went purely California. I don't think there was any reason to divert and I found a really fun wine that you guys did that I think ties into his profession. And then another one that I just love so much that I actually can't believe we haven't had on this podcast yet. So a Pinot and a Cab today, both from California. We'll share what they are as we get into this podcast, which I think is going to be one that pops around a little bit and will be filled with plenty of great stories. So let's drink. Well, welcome, Ken. It's so good to see you, to hear your voice, not on your own podcast, Hollywood and Levine, but on ours. And I hope it's not too early to have you drinking with us. Oh, no. It's it's 11 o'clock where I am now. And, uh, you know, I, I usually start around 6, so <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to start seven hours earlier than you normally start drinking? <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. Yeah, no, this is a nice excuse to actually start drinking. <laughs> at 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's what everyone keeps telling us, but we just want to make sure that we're, there's not too much peer pressure happening. Really, not since the inauguration have I been <laughs> drinking in the morning. I think a lot of people have said that, right? Or yeah. at least I think I think that was the general theme for 2020. It was like, eh, it's about 11. This is yeah. the right time to start drinking. <laughs> Love it. Well, Ken, you have such a, a broad resume. I don't think that we've had anyone on this show that really tackles multiple different industries and jobs and really cool gigs that you had over your career. But you started, I think, as a writer, correct? Well, I started as a as a top 40 disc jockey 
when I got out of college. And I was, you know, one of those funny disc jockey, Howard Stern before Howard Stern. And so I was always getting fired. (laughs) Why? Because they would go, this guy isn't funny. Get rid of this guy. And I was always, whenever there were two rock stations in the market, there was always the big number one station. And then there was the second station. And I was always on the second station. I was always on the the station that always got the lousy ratings. So whenever the ratings came out, they decided to make changes, and I was usually the first one. And I got tired of that, and I also got tired of playing kung fu fighting. And the night Chicago died. Was that that? Was that like the hit the hit song of the day? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I decided, you know, maybe I better try something else. And uh, I decided to get into comedy writing. So one, one doesn't just get into comedy writing, right? Like there has to, what was the transition? Did you, were you a writer before? Had you done any stand-up or? No, I had never done, done any comedy writing before. Um, I met my partner, David Isaacs. We were both in the same army reserve unit and this was 1973. And at the time, I was a disc jockey in San Bernardino. And we both had a desire to try to write, but neither of us had ever done it before. When the Army summer camp was over and I went back to my civilian life, I promptly got fired from San Bernardino (laughs) and came back to Los Angeles to live with my parents while I tried to get another job. And David at the time was living in LA and he was working at ABC in the film can distribution department, long since obsolete. But uh, I called him up and I said, hey, you want to try writing something? And we got together and we decided, okay, let's partner up. And then a writer said, well, to break in, you need to write a script from an existing show. And we loved the Mary Tyler Moore show. So we thought, okay, we'll do that. But again, we had never taken a writing class. I had to actually go to a bookstore in Hollywood and get a copy of a script to see what one even looked like. And what we would do, this was Saturday nights back then, We would watch the Mary Tyler Moore show, which was on Saturday night at nine o'clock on CBS. And I would hold a small microphone up to the speaker of the TV and we would record it. And then we would go back and write a detailed outline of the show based on what we saw. And we did this week after week after week until eventually we started seeing the patterns and figured out how to write that show. So we were basically self-taught. And I always maintain that if I had a girlfriend back in those days, I probably never would have become a writer. (laughs) Because it just took so much time. But at least I got a career. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that, that's like still the case today though, right? Like you kind of have to choose one or the other. Unless you have a really good understanding person. <laughs> yeah, no, now you can binge watch shows. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, so now you can, if you want to write a, a spec episode of Mom, you can just go back and watch 100 episodes all at one time. We had to watch at 9 o'clock on Saturday night, which certainly cut into my uh, social life, but I had no social life. So it worked out just fine. I feel like you missed the opportunity to like throw a Mary Tyler Moore party and like invite some ladies over. Like, what do you think, ladies? Boy, where were you? (laughs) I totally would have fallen for that. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask, since you're, you were, and your writing partner were listening to all these shows and, you know, sketching out the kind of the convention or the format, did you get so good that you could kind of predict what was going to happen? That's a really good question. Um, yes, on a lot of shows. No, on the shows that we thought were good enough that we wanted to write. But you're right. You know, we would watch episodes of Happy Days and stuff like that. And we were usually one or two scenes ahead of that them. That is a good question. No one's ever asked me that. Yeah, I mean, I get. I guess you get to know these characters so intimately in a way that I think most viewers would never even care to be concerned with. So it it would result in some level of predictability. But I guess if you're a good, a really good writer, you always keep people on their toes, no matter how closely they're paying attention and watching. It's one of the reasons why I loved writing Cheers, because my partner and I were on that show for nine years. 
and we wrote 40 episodes of Cheers. And we never got tired of those characters. You know, we always found ways for them to surprise us, do something new. And it was a joy. Well, it was such a great ensemble cast too, right? You had so many incredibly talented actors. And then you also had, I mean, it was one of the only shows I can recall where every character mattered and every character had an arc and every character had little little stereotypes, little little pieces about them that made them uniquely theirs. And how often do we see that now? I mean, it's so rare. Yeah, that's true. And we were also blessed with really good actors. I'm so spoiled having written for MASH and Frasier and Cheers. I've gotten a chance to have some of the world's greatest actors do my material <laughs> and make me look way better. I'm sure the feeling is mutual from the actors because coming from the other side, you can't just pull that out of out of your rear end. Like something has to exist on on page in order to make it come to life on, on the stage or the screen. Well, we writers like to think so, yes. <laughs> did uh, did any of those actors ever disagree with what you wrote or, or ask you to rewrite something for them? Oh, sure. Um, and a lot of times uh, I begrudgingly admit they were right because they knew their characters. I mean, they embodied those characters. And um, yeah, there were things that we wrote, we'd go down and watch a run through and uh, they would be uncomfortable saying something or we would see something and we would say, mm, it's going to be new tomorrow. I mean, one thing like with David Hyde Pierce, who was so great that if we had a joke for David Hyde Pierce and it didn't work in a run through, we just drew a line through it and said, okay, our fault, we'll do something else. Because sometimes the line doesn't work with an actor and you go back to the room and you go, well, he kind of mumbled it. He didn't say the setup right. Uh, his back was turned. You know, maybe we could give this another day. But if David Hyde Pierce did not get a laugh on a line where he was supposed <laughs> to, our fault. And we would just go back and write something else for him. But again, I was also very lucky in that the actors that I dealt with were very respectful and, um, you know, they didn't throw scripts down on the floor and, and that sort of thing. And when I was on MASH, and this was something that had been established by uh, the originators of the TV series, Gene Reynolds and Larry Gelbart. We had the table reading where the cast all sat around a conference table and read the script out loud. And then we went page by page. Does anybody have something on page one, page two, page three? And so all of the actors were encouraged to give their opinions. And like I said, usually those resulted in, in better scripts. And we always felt, well, it's just part of the process. You know, when we put a script on the table for them the first day, it was not the Rosetta Stone. So <laughs> we always just kind of assumed, okay, there'll be some fine tuning here. Uh, this is a little clunky in this part. Uh, this turn happens uh, a little fast. Uh, this joke, laid a giant egg. <laughs> so we, we would always go back and, and fix. And like I said, it was always just part of the process. Was there anyone besides David Hyde Pierce that you had that sort of reaction to where if they didn't nail the line or nail the, or if the joke didn't land that you were like, well, it's, it's clearly us. I mean that it takes a, a talented actor or I should say a unique actor to have that sort of relationship with or to recognize that level of talent to say this is the guy that if he can't make it work no one else can was there anyone else like that i would say alan alda mm. i would say tom hanks mm. and uh ted danson and shelly long you just like named like the, I the yeah. idols of our <laughs> Did you ever that, have... That sounds yeah, about right. too. I mean, Alan Alda came to my wedding. It was like the wow. coolest thing. Wow. I love him. Yeah. Did you ever have to write a character out of a show? Uh, yes, a number of times. Often that's because the show is long and uh, there's just not room for that character. Mm. And sometimes we'll try to bring him back in a later episode. And there have also been 
characters that we have written out because they just don't work. And there have also been times when we've fired actors and said it's not the character's fault. Let's bring in somebody else and it'll work. That's not our favorite thing, but... But that's why we have wine. To make <laughs> exactly. <it> all <laughs> and speaking of which, uh, this is, you know, a very delayed entrance into the podcast for wine drinking, but I'd love to raise a glass, whatever one I've you... been drinking the whole time. Good. I'm, I'm so I'm glad. I'm bottle down. Oh, good. I'm so proud. You're like, you're way ahead of most of our guests that, you know, they feel like they need a, you know, signal or something, the bad signal. Yeah, hey, that's what they drinking. say. That's what they say. You're what right. They say. You're right. Cheers to you. It's really good to have you on the show. And we're drinking two delicious wines, I think. Hopefully you like them. But as always, we got a little intel from Laura Coffer, who always does a little chat with with our guests prior to recording. Mm-hmm. She had mentioned you like a number of things, but one of one of the interesting notes that I got was your wife is more of a wine drinker and you like cherries and chocolate and Ben and Jerry's flavors. I there's like very little written here for the notes, but the Ben and Jerry's flavors here was a very interesting hmm. descriptor and note to add. Yeah. I mean, I like my wine and my ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Together or like similar flavors? Uh, similar flavors. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I like fruity wines. I, I tend to like okay. fruity wines. That's good to know. Yeah. I think that's a that's a descriptor some people are afraid to admit, right? They they say oh, You know, I understand that. Yeah. That's like so weird. I I don't know why. It's like well, what's I, wrong with what's wrong with fruit? It's it's not Manischewitz. <laughs> but you know, like I think this is a perfect example, right? Like the white Zinfandel line from Fraser. I think people think of fruity as being sweet, as being in the same vein as white Zinfandel. And to like a sweet wine, it means your palate is unrefined. Great point. Ah, so yeah. I think there's a certain connotation there that that lends itself to people thinking that if I say I like a fruity wine, it means I like a sweet wine, which means I'm not as, you know, I'm not as refined as this, you know, this bougie person next door drinking something a little bit more Earthen, perhaps. But, I don't know. But then some of the great wines of the world are sweet, too. Of course. So, and they're some of my favorite wines. Yeah. You know, and for all of your listeners, you can like sweet wine without it being Mogan David. <laughs> One thousand percent. We, we fight this fight every day. I mean, you know, Riesling, of course, is probably the one that gets the, the worst rap for it, for being sweet. Of course, not all Rieslings are sweet, but we had a delicious one the other day that has just a touch of residual sugar just to sort of balance it out. And I mean, even if you like a sweet wine, there are so many great sweet wines. out. I mean, the best wine in the world, arguably, is Chateau Yquem, right? A very almost cloyingly sweet wine that's balanced with acidity and only made in certain vintages. But it is some of the most expensive, some of the most prized sought after wine out there. And it is decidedly a sweet wine. Right. All these people that say they hate uh, sweet wine, I bet they go to parties where there's sangria and they just get smashed. One thousand (laughs) percent. Thank you, Ken. That is exactly what they're doing. They are liars. You're right. Well, or maybe they just don't know, right? I think it's also difficult as as tasters, as people drinking to really know like what has sugar, what doesn't, especially because it's not indicated on, on the label so much with wine. So I think there's... Again, I, I think there is the, just this stigma with sugar and sweetness, but I don't know. You wrote you wrote two of the most legendary uh, enophiliacs in the world on Fraser. Um, the the Fraser brothers were, you know, lovers of of wine. Was that something that you had to think about a lot in your writings for Fraser? Well, we had to do research, um, and there are some writers on the Fraser staff who were connoisseurs or at least fancied themselves Mm -hmm. as as connoisseurs and so we would just you know kind of go along with that like yeah okay (laughs) sure um but then that was part of fraser and niles um personality yeah you know and then the fun thing about wine in a show like that is you know you can really make the characters overly pretentious right Right. You know, that, that, you know, um, wine drinkers can tend to be insufferable at times. Some can. Yep. Yeah. 
What? And I said some. How many men. times have you be, have you been at a party and you know and there's a guy with uh with his wine and and he's just you know sending and, everything back and all. I was once in Chili's and I saw that they oh. have wine. Okay. I had so no idea. It, it was it was worth it for me to do this. So I ordered a glass of wine at Chili's and sent it back. No, you didn't. Just for fun? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. What did you say? What was, tell me, like, was it a joke set up? Uh, this, this will never do. This, this uh, what will is this? never do. This will never Swill. do. Remove yeah. this immediately. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I've got, you know, nachos and a burger and hot wings and. <laughs> you didn't want to. Okay, okay. If you're, if you have wine at Chili's, then. Then you're leaving yourself wide open for this. Especially when they have an arsenal of such great cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> but the wings and all everything you named, I mean, actually, those could be some fun wine pairings, don't you think, Amanda? I think so. You know, I haven't been to a Chili's in quite some time, mostly because we live in Napa Valley and there's, you know, there, we don't have things like that here. Um, but what do you think? Is that one step above or below airplane wine and not in first class in coach? Um. Probably, probably above, probably above. Chili's is above airplane wine. I, I have okay. never had airplane wine, so it's it's hard for me oh, to say. Oh, you're missing out, Ken. You're missing out. Yeah. You got to have an entryway for people. Exactly. You know, if you want people to drink wine, there has to be an easy way to get into it. It's like anything. It's like TV. Like, what's your first favorite show that got you into TV? My first favorite show? What is your, yeah, yeah what is your first favorite show? Probably the honeymooners, which I'm going to date myself. Okay. You guys are going like, you know, <laughs> what the hell is that? Like we've seen it at Nick and Night or something. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's a classic show Sorry. from the fifties. Yeah, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. And what what was it about that show that that made you stop and watch? It's funny. It's funny. And then a show that yeah. had a big impact on me was the Dick Van Dyke show in the sixties, mm. because this was a show about a comedy writer and he was married. We go back to Mary Tyler Moore, you know, as Laura Petrie. Right. And like every other male back then, I had this huge crush on Laura Petrie. And I thought, wait a minute, you mean you could get a girl like this without having to be a football player? <laughs> that if you're funny, you could get a, a girl like this. I could be funny. I'll be a comedy writer. So that had a major wow. impact on my life back then. So the whole writing career really stemmed out of a crush is what I'm hearing. You know what? Ask most writers and they'll tell you the reason they became writers was to get girls. <laughs> okay. You know, when my credit appears, I think back because I was a real nerd in high school. When I think of all those girls that shot me down and... Maybe now one or two of them are sitting in trailer parks and, uh, you know, having, uh, you know, these, you know, unhappy marriages and my credit comes up and I hope for them it reads written by the guy I should have been much nicer to in high school and David Isaacs. <laughs> you were the one that got away, Ken. And what about current shows? Are, are there any ones that you think that are on currently that are really, really well-written? Um, yeah, God, it's, well, first of all, dramas. I mean, it is a golden age for TV dramas. Uh, I really liked Hacks. What is it? I didn't watch it. I really thought Hacks was, was good. No. It's with Gene Smart. I've not watched it. No. Check that out. I'm taking notes. Yeah. Okay. Hacks is on the list. All right. I thought Mom was actually a, a pretty funny show. Was that, was that the one on CBS? Yes. Okay. With uh, on a remember CBS. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you your. Th I mean, <laughs> network TV versus the world, right? Like, so much has changed. I'm sure since you were writing for Frasier and Cheers and Mash. But oh God, yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I I feel like you know we're also lucky to have experienced both. But it is a it is weird to go back. Like there was a show that I watched on Netflix that I guess it was like Kevin Hart's new show and there was a laugh track and I was like, I was so uncomfortable listening to it. I was like, I, is this, this was what we used to listen to all that. This was like how shows used to be written. And the second I heard a laugh track in something so modern, I was like, I was just totally, totally 
totally jarred. I don't know. Do you have? Did you have that experience? Did anybody else watch that? Well, one of the reasons why on Cheers, you'll notice there is a disclaimer at the top of every episode that said Cheers was filmed before a live studio audience is because the laughter that we used on Cheers was real. Mm. We had 250 people in a bleacher with microphones over their heads, Mm -hmm. but the audience (laughs) didn't believe it because of all of the laugh tracks that are out there. Um, and so we had to like tell the audience like, no, th- this is real. This is real. But some of those laugh tracks, you have to realize that a lot of those were recorded in the 50s, mm. like during I Love Lucy and everything. So not only is it intrusive and annoying, but a lot of those people who are laughing are dead. <laughs> And thought about that. <laughs> I'm never gonna listen to a laugh track again the same way. It's like dead people are laughing at your show. We had a big fight constantly with CBS on MASH because they insisted upon a laugh track, and we would say, Well, where are these people? <laughs> where are they? Are they here? There's a chopper pad. Is there a set of bleachers somewhere? And the only concession we got them to make was in the operating room. We said, really? You know, we're going to have people laughing with blood spurting up and everything. Yeah, that was the only concession. We didn't have to have a laugh track in OR. So what do you think? Is the laugh track dead? I mean, not the people, but the the concept of the laugh track. Is it, is it fading? Is it, is it ever going to be revived? I think it's fading, but, but the notion of multi-camera shows is Mm. not, um, it, it really just depends on the quality of the show. There's actually a Netflix show with Wanda Sykes mm. that's a multi-camera show called The Upshaws. It's actually very mm. funny. You know, a lot of people will go, oh, I can't stand multi-camera shows. And I always say, do you like Friends? Yeah. Because Friends is as retro a multi-camera show with a studio audience as you're going to find. Now there is Golden Girls, okay? People love Golden Girls. Full House. Well, that's a a multi-camera show. Full House, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, Seinfeld. Yeah. There's tons of really good ones. So it, I think, has more to do with the fact that not only are you responding to the laugh track, you're responding to the fact that they're laughing at something that's not funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hate the idea of being forced to laugh at anything. So to me, the, the laugh track feels a little bit antiquated. But I also, I also have to wonder, with so many great shows popping up on Netflix and Amazon and HBO, how much without laugh tracks, like how much we're just used to not hearing it and how much of the great writing and great material is going, is just going there and not being put towards multi-camera, multi-cam shows. The one thing about multi-camera shows, as opposed to single camera shows like MASH, which is shot like a movie or Modern Family or any of those others, is that with a multi-camera show, you're held accountable. Mm. Okay? You write jokes, and there's going to be 250 strangers that are going to respond to it. So the joke better work. Right. And if the joke doesn't work, come up with another joke that that does work. And when you're doing a single-camera show, a lot of times you may think something is funny. You know, you and your friends, and you're watching the dailies, and you're hysterical. Mm-hmm. But America is going, huh? <laughs> we don't huh? get it. <laughs> it was like, what, what's, so, what's so funny about this? But they, they're not held accountable the way you are on a multi-camera show. And the other thing about multi-camera shows is that the actors, I think, feed off the energy of the audience because it's like a play. Right. And I, I think their performances go up. And as a TV director, because I've directed like not probably over 60 multi-camera episodes. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that, you know, they're rehearsing and they're rehearsing and all of a sudden the audience is there and the laughs are there and the red lights are on, the cameras are running and their performance goes up like 10%. Yeah. I believe I it. I mean, you can just, you can just see it. So I think there's a lot of value in it. I mean, look, the whole idea of, the laugh track 
stems from 70 years ago when TV started, the TV executives figured, well, when you go to a movie theater, it's a shared experience and everybody laughs. And sometimes you laugh because everyone else is laughing and it's kind of infectious. Mm -hmm. Television, you're sitting at home watching by yourself. Maybe if there was the sound of other people laughing that you would laugh too or that, that you would find it funny. Right. But laughter is infectious. Yeah. But it's annoying. Is there a favorite episode uh, that you directed that you remember fondly? Yes. There is an episode of Frasier called Roz and the Schnoz. <laughs> and it's oh, like uh, the character of Roz is pregnant and she's going to meet the parents of the father. And they go, oh, well, this is kind of a good indication of kind of what the baby might look like. And both parents have giant noses <laughs> <laughs> that that the, the father of Roz's baby had a nose job. Ah. But the parents had these giant noses. And it's a dinner party at Frazier's apartment. And it's just so obvious, but nobody wants to say anything. And yet, they're all hysterical. And what was really funny was that the actors themselves had such a hard time and were really losing it. And uh, I would say to my cameraman, they, you know, you had four cameras running at the same time and the cameras would change assignments. If a character walked around a couch, all of a sudden camera X would get him and camera A would get Frasier. And so things would always change. And the cameras had these assignments. So it's like when you hear Frasier say, it's time now for wine, go to your next mark. Okay. But I said to them, if you're on an actor and he is starting to break up or do something weird. Mm -hmm. Stay with mm -hmm. him. Don't leave. Okay. <laughs> I'll go back and pick it up. I'll, I'll shoot it again and, and get the coverage. So there's some really great shots of David Hyde Pierce and John Mahoney uh, and, and Kelsey Grammer, uh, coming so close to like really <laughs> losing it <laughs> you know, where you see David Hyde Pierce and his like shoulders are shaking. Uh, you know, he's biting his tongue. Uh, it's a really funny episode. It's called Roz and the Schnoz. So of the ones I directed that I would say was my favorite. Speaking with about Frasier. So when they were, you know, drinking wine during those episodes, mm -hmm. What was in their glass? Was that actual wine? Was it grape juice? I think they were they drinking, drinking actual wine because they weren't drinking that much. Mm. You know, uh, everyone always asks on Cheers all of the beer that Norm was consuming. Mm -hmm. And that was beer, but it was non-alcoholic beer that was warm by the time they were actually shooting the show. Delicious. And, yeah, he would be, mm. you know, okay, let's do another take. Oh, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, as best I recall that they, they used real they wine. They actually drank wine. They would just sip, yeah. I wonder who provided it, where they got the wine. Chili's. They went to Chili's. They went to Chili's and American Airlines, I think, for their wine. <laughs> <laughs> there are There's rumors of a reboot. Of for Frasier, is this is this happening? Is it not happening? And yeah, it is happening. It is happening. Yeah, the reboot apparently is set. It'll be for the Paramount Plus network. Nice. And it could be as early as the beginning of next year. Um, I think they're trying to get David Hyde Pierce and Jane Leaves and Perry Gilpin to at least appear in part of that series mm -hmm. so um it's definitely happening i hope it's good are you involved no i'm not no at least not now do you want to be involved it depends on what the involvement is mm. you know i don't want to work full-time anymore I, i'm <laughs> i'm tired of the 60 hour weeks where do you think they are now as a writer if you had to if you had to extrapolate out what's it been 20 years since they last aired where do you think the brothers are now where are the characters 
I would imagine that the series, and again, this is just kind of conjecture on mm-hmm. my part. Yeah. But I think the series might center more on Fraser and Frederick, his son, that that might be sort of the core of the series, the way Frazier and his father, Martin, mm-hmm. were, was the core of the original series. But again, that's just my conjecture. Remember, at the end of Frazier, he leaves Seattle. Mm-hmm. He goes off to, I think, Chicago to, uh, to be with Laura Linney. Who was another great actress? Yeah. Oh my God, it was just so cool to be writing for Laura Linney. Um, but um, so I don't know. I don't even know if it's going to be set in Seattle. It might be set somewhere else. I have no idea. Do you think he's he's still practicing? Do you think he's still a doctor, or do you think he's retired, or or still on the radio? Probably not on the radio. Does he have a podcast? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Podcast. <laughs> well, it's kind of tough to do a podcast if it's not live. So he's recording it and going, okay, the number is 555-3284. Call in with your problems. And, of course, nobody calls in because no one can hear it. So He could do a live podcast. That's a thing. And have some, have some wine. Yeah. Yeah, you could. This is, this so speaking of podcasts, I hear you have specific opinions about what makes for a bad podcast. Yes, I, I, I did an episode uh, on my podcast where um, I simulated all of the horrible things that I hear on bad podcasts. Um, I had a, a, a wonderful co-host named Aoife Cardi, and uh, we would we would go off on these tangents and never get back, and we would start quizzes and never give the answer. <laughs> There would be leaf blowers going off. There would be dogs <laughs> in the background. Uh, at one point, I got a uh, a FedEx, so I left to answer the door, and there was like dead air where nothing was edited out. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, just rambling nonsense. It was really fun to do. Um, and I've gotten a lot of um, I've gotten a lot of good reaction, and uh, a number of podcast coaches have told me that they now use that podcast episode as you know an example of what not to do. Okay, so how are we doing? <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> oh, phew. Okay, you guys are on topic. <laughs> And you're prepared. Um, you know, a lot of these these podcasts, the the two co-hosts will spend the first 15 minutes just talking about the minutia of their day and their lives. Right. You know, and it's like, I went to the store and tried to get grape nuts and I couldn't get grape nuts anymore. Oh, my God. What what did you do? Well, I you know can is there anyone we can call? Oh my God! And they'll just go on about nothing. You know, there's this nothing for like fifteen twenty minutes, and you want to go? Who gives a shit? Well, if it were David Hyde Pierce talking about grape nuts, I'd probably be interested. But I'd say most people, I'm less interested. He would do it in a funny way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed your episode with Will Clark. Yeah, Will the Thrill. I'll, t- I'll tell you a Will Clark story. Yes. When I was broadcasting for the Seattle Mariners, and he was with the Texas Rangers, and it was one day during batting practice, and the Mariners were taking BP, and I happened to be sitting on the Ranger bench in their dugout next to Will. And one of our best hitters, in fact, he's now in the Hall of Fame, Edgar Martinez, came to the plate to take his hacks. And I said to Will, what makes him so good a hitter? And he broke down his swing and his approach and, and everything. And it was, it was just really remarkable, so scientific and mm. so intuitive that as the other players came up, I'd say, oh, okay, uh, tell me about Tino Martinez. Tell me about this guy. And through Will, I learned so much about the mechanics of of our hitters 
And, you know, he was just, uh, you know, a, a visiting ball player. And I'm just, you know, the schmuck announcer <laughs> from the other team. But uh, he was he was great. And and he has always been uh, a huge favorite of mine. That's really cool. He I mean, he's he was great on the podcast. How did you get into announcing for baseball? So I wanted to be a baseball announcer from the time I was eight. And you took a detour to get there, huh? I did. And I reached a point in my mid-30s. It was kind of, you know, the midlife crisis. And and I said, you know, if I don't pursue this now, I never will. Mm -hmm. And so for two years, I went to the upper deck of Dodger Stadium with a tape recorder and just started announcing games and learning how to do that. And after a couple of years, I sent tapes to the minors and got a job in Syracuse, New York. And then there was an opening with the Baltimore Orioles, and I sent in my tape. And lucky me, I got the job. I don't think that was luck. I mean, I think you just gave some great advice. If you want to do something, make it happen. Do it yourself. Don't wait for someone to pay you to do it. Just get out there. I mean, it's absolutely. Those are great life lessons. I mean, I I think we have so much at our disposal. And I think about what I didn't have and maybe what you didn't have 20 years ago, whenever you started this. But I think about all the resources we have to learn something in the way of the internet and YouTube and how connected the world is. And it must have been, it must have been difficult to have the foresight to think about, well, if I want to do this, how am I going to do that? Like, you know, were there people that you listened to? Was was there advice that you got? I mean, you didn't have YouTube or the internet at your disposal, I suspect. No, no. Um, Sometimes what I would do is I would go to a stadium, either Dodger Stadium or Anaheim Stadium, and I would announce the game into a tape recorder. And I also had another tape recorder that I could tape the actual broadcast. Mm. Okay. So I would listen to my inning and then I would listen to Vin Scully calling the inning and I would hear what he did, how much better he called the play. And I would like, Oh, okay. I, I see what he did there. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I learned, you know, look, my big fear was that people would think I was an idiot because I'm sitting up there and I would go to the top deck, which is above the timber line. And uh, back in in those days, general admission was non-reserved seats. Mm. So I figured, you know, if somebody's paying big money to sit in a club box, they don't want some idiot sitting next to them going, there's a drive to deep left field. <laughs> so if I'm in the upper deck and I'm annoying to you, then you can get up and move a few seats away. But what would happen was uh, there were a series of regulars that would come like every night and they always liked my broadcast. So they would come and they would sit mm. around me to hear me do it. And I would buy them all a beer and they would bring binoculars and have notepads and they would like slip me notes like such and such as warming mm. up in the bullpen, <laughs> you know, pinch hitter over here. You know, they would they would help me out. So I, I had my own um, my own group of spotters. You had, an, you had an entourage, I think, is what you had. Right. I mean, look, L.A. is so status conscious. You go to the ball game and you want your own announcer. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> Seems reasonable. Everyone should have one. That's very reasonable. <laughs> How are we feeling about these wines? Uh, hopefully not boring. I, you know, it's interesting. I no, I, I like them. They're both California. I don't think we've said what they are. We've got oh, we've got the editorial Cabernet. So we, you know, I'm a holding little... it up to the microphone. Great. I'm sure we can hear the the whisper of the tears oh. draining on the glass. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a sip. Take a sip. So the editorial is a little on the nose. Obviously, you probably took a peek at the label. There's a typewriter on there. There's a fun story mm-hmm. on the back. You're a writer. You like some cab. We were like, this is this is perfect. But this is actually one of my favorite wines that Wine Access has put out because this is like one of their secret source NDA wines. So it's fruit from a really, really, really premium property in Napa Valley, but they can't say where it is. So they, you know, there's this really fun story around it, and it's bottled and um, – 
you know, you get it for a fraction of the price. So that's the cab. And then I like it. Yeah, no, it's delicious. And it 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 punches above its weight class. Sorry, connoisseurs. <laughs> I like the fruit. <laughs> you know what's funny? I, I we we mentioned we talked about fruit earlier, but fruit is one of those things that makes a wine long lasting. It makes it age. It makes it, you know, of course we need all the other things to uh, like acid and tannin, but fruit more than anything is, is what we want in wines. I mean, and that's, you know, this is unabashedly California. I'm sure this is something that, um, that Fraser would have turned his nose up at because he was famously only interested in old world, earthy, smelly, smells like the dog in the, in the show wines, but this is delicious. And then we've got the Pinot, the rain, Pinot from Sonoma Coast, which is a little less fruity, but still, still California. There's yeah, it's very, it's very, t- it's playfully articulate. Did you say unabashedly California, Amanda? That I think that's perfect for 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 both yeah. of these, and then, and they're both yeah. to go back, Ken, to what you were describing yeah. earlier. These are both dry wines, but there there is a good amount of fruit. We have that California sunshine kind of showing itself in both glasses. So, yeah, mm-hmm. there's there's definitely taste to it, and for the people who don't like fruit. What are grapes? Exactly. Exactly. You're you're drinking the wrong the wrong beverage. Drink tea if you don't like fruit. Right. It'll make you happier. Still tannin. <laughs> Just no fruit. No, these are both delicious. That's the worst thing you can say about it. Yeah, I, yeah. I think, you know, all great wine has fruit. It's just it depends in, in what um you know it, it in what quality. So when we look at California wines, they just tend to be a little fruitier. And I think this rain Pinot, I don't know, Vanessa, tell me what you think. I think this, you know, as much as this, they're both unabashedly California, mm-hmm. the rain Pinot has a little of that mushroomy kind of funk. Totally. Yeah. Something that reminds you that it's, this is not just fruit. Like there's something else there, but it still has that California kissed quality about it. No, I think you're exactly right. And a beautiful acidity to it also. Mm-hmm. Right, I say right. I, 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 I am not uh, <laughs> equipped to say there's a mushroom <laughs> taste to it. You guys are. <laughs> um, you've had this long line of of professions, as we've mentioned. But do you think there was there a highlight of your career in any of the different professions that you've had so far? I would say this for my broadcasting career. Vince Scully was my idol. And there was a Dodger game where I filled in for the radio announcer, and it was a TV game. And when there was a TV game, Vin Scully would do the first three innings simulcast on radio and television, and then he would do TV the rest of the game, and somebody else would do the radio. So for that one day, Dodger baseball was broadcast by Vin Scully and me. Wow. And as a kid listening to him, you know, at eight years old to be joining him calling a Dodger game has to be the absolute highlight of of my career. That's pretty cool. That's a that's a really cool way to make it all come full circle and, and truly make dreams come true. Yeah. Ken, thank you so much for sharing all of these stories. It's it's amazing all the things that you've done in your – I'm not even going to assign a number to it because in your lifetime and it's still not over. Um, anything else that you think people should know in terms of where to find you, where to look for you, where to continue consuming what you're putting out into the world? Well, certainly the podcast, Hollywood and Levine. And I also have a blog. I've had a blog for like 16 years, mm. and it's called by Ken Levine, by KenLevine.com. Or you can just go to Google and just type in Ken Levine blog, and it will take you there. And I pretty much write something new every day. Wow. And on Friday, I answer reader questions, and uh, and I give advice and do humor pieces and uh, reviews and my sagacious opinion about various things. We love opinions. We love people that have them. And we really appreciate you coming on the podcast to drink some wine with us. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. Our pleasure. And hopefully you've got some wine left over to drink. I didn't see you chugging too hard over there, but I don't know, maybe inspiration will strike. It's hard to talk and drink at the same time, I found. It's not that hard. (laughs) Uh, yeah, we've, we've figured it out, Ken. <laughs> it can be done. If you need any pointers, you know who to call. Yeah, well, I'll have an IV installed. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much, and uh, good luck with uh, with everything, and we hope to see you again soon. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Vanessa, I feel like I have so much to accomplish in my life now. Like, I'm not even close. No, you're exactly right. I mean, I knew I was going to feel like an underachiever, but he's he's really extraordinary, everything that he's done, but I, I loved how much he talked about so much of it was self-taught, you know, like he decided he wanted to do it, you know, as you pointed out, it's not like some of these things were easily researchable or yeah. you, know, you weren't, couldn't hire a teacher to teach you how to do these things like, you know, calling a baseball game or whatever. And he just made it happen. I admire that so much. Yeah. Calling a baseball game, becoming a writer on a hit show, on hit shows, plural, starting a podcast, doing a blog. I mean, he really is a self-starter. It's really impressive to listen to him and to listen to the humility yeah. with which he sort of comes at it. Like there didn't really seem to he didn't really seem to have an ego about it. It was like, yeah, I just like did these things. I wanted to do it. And so I did it. And I really respect that. I think it's a, it's a fine quality in any human, but it's nice to see it pay off in the way that it has in his own career over the last uh, several decades. So we drank some delicious wines today. We had the 2018 editorial Coombsville. There are several editorials that you guys have put out. And I have to say this, this one's been one of my favorites. I talked about it on my Instagram not too long ago as being one of my favorites in that like sub $30 category. And this one was dynamite today. Oh, I'm so glad you like it. I completely agree. I think it's, uh, I think it's beautiful. And I love the rain Pinot Noir. I'm such a fan. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about – this is Carlo Mondavi um, and, and Dante, his brother. Mm-hmm. It's their wine, and and I just – I have such respect for them, not only as winemakers, but, you know, they're really kind of um, at the forefront of sustainability and, you know, all these initiatives about, you know, environmental um, safeguards, et cetera. So, you know, in the glass, outside of the glass, huge fan. Yeah, and, and really practicing what they preach. I think it – it's one thing to say that you want to be sustainable and environmentally friendly, but they are truly trying to revolutionize the industry with the Monarch Tractor. And I'm I'm always impressed that they managed to do that and make a delicious, delicious wine. I, I've had several different cuvées. This is the Sonoma Coast Royal St. Robert, and that's Rain, R-A-E-N. Everything is linked below, by the way, in the description, so you can find these wines on Wine Access, which I guess I just stole from you. Normally, I ask you where we can find these, but uh, I think I just I just, I just, just let the cat out of the bag, right? <laughs> oh, well, speaking of cats, I did just want to say we, we talked in the podcast about Ken's spoof podcast about everything to do wrong. <laughs> You know, on a podcast, <laughs> and you that. mentioned dogs barking <laughs> and FedEx deliveries. And I was like, I get FedEx deliveries all the time during this show. We get those a lot. <laughs> and I literally had a cat on my lap for like the first 15 minutes that I was, you know, try- <laughs> trying to keep from, you know, meowing right into the microphone. So luckily he didn't pick up on that. <laughs> but your cat, your cats have become like a character on the show. And I appreciate that. I don't think any podcast is complete without some tail sort of just waving in your face and attempting to knock over a wine glass. It always amuses me. Even when yes. the guest doesn't catch it, I, I always laugh. Um, <laughs> I keep I keep threatening that we have to put this out on our Instagram channel. I really need – I need to make a montage of all the times a cat has entered the picture during these. It, it'll happen <laughs> yes. at some point. These wines are available on WineAccess.com. They are linked below in the description. Uh, you can also learn more about the podcast on Wine Access Unfiltered on Instagram and at Wine Access Pod on Twitter. Vanessa, what did I miss in terms of telling people where to find things? Wine Access Instagram? Oh, uh, at Wine Access on Instagram. Yep. Or the Wine Access Experience uh, on Facebook. Yeah. That's always a fun group, a fun group to talk about wine and share your fun wine stories. If you're enjoying this podcast, and we certainly hope you are, please do go ahead and subscribe to be notified whenever we release a new episode, which is every other week on Thursdays. And if you really like what we're doing, the thing that hopes, helps us the most in our endeavor to let more people know that we are doing fun things in terms of wine and conversation, leaving us a review, preferably the five-star kind, is really, really helpful. uh, And we so appreciate it. So thank you so much. We have two delicious bottles of wine to power through for the rest of the day slash week because I think these are actually going to stand up I think for several days. I think I'll our cork it, put it in my fridge, and hope that I've got a steak on the horizon for um, for at least one of these. Yeah, it's a good day for barbecue. Yeah. All right, Vanessa, great to see you as always. Thanks for being here. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers.